Hello and welcome to Listen Here, a podcast by me, Rachel Howfield-Massey from Other Ways to Walk. This podcast is supported by the National Forest Company, who are helping me to make six episodes of the podcast, especially about the National Forest in the Midlands. Each episode includes an interview with an expert, either by experience or training, and we'll be talking about their relationship with nature. You'll be invited to join in with a creative nature activity, a walk and a meditation all of which are optional, of course. These activities are all guided by myself and are informed by many years of experience as a qualified mindfulness instructor, wellbeing expert and artist, an all-round general nature lover. I hope you enjoy it. And if you want to find out more, please follow the links wherever you found this podcast. So hello and welcome to uh, Listen Here, a podcast by Rachel Howfield-Massey from Other Ways to Walk. Um, and this week for Listen Here, I'm talking to Jason Ingemels from Woodland Ways. Hi, Jason. Hi there. How are you doing? Hi, welcome. Um, so I've we had a little, we had a brief chat a week or two ago about the sorts of things you do. I'm really, really looking forward to um, finding out more today. So, and I've had a little look at your website, Jason, to, to find out a bit more. So it's it's a huge range of things actually that are offered by Woodland Ways. Um, but in Derbyshire on the uh, events list at the moment, I think there was things like bushcraft, bow making, flint napping, natural navigation, spoon carving, tracking, so a whole host of stuff, like a, a zillion ways of connecting with nature and being in nature. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really pleased that you've, you've been able to join us um, for this podcast today. Thanks. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in tracking. I think for me, that's something that is a bit kind of complicated and mysterious because I don't know much about it. So I'm really interested to know a bit more about that as a way to, to kind of read the forest or to get to know and woodlands but uh, there's loads to talk about from all the, all the stuff that you do um, and just to say before we go any further we're recording this podcast on zoom so we're now in mid-april we're almost at a point in england where we're going to have a bit more freedom to be out and about meeting each other in in more relaxed ways um, but both jason and i are in our homes so forgive us for any interruptions of doorbells pets um, builders outside so We'll kick off. Um, the, just to say the overriding theme, as ever, is about exploring ways to connect with nature and boost well-being through connecting with nature. But before we really get into that conversation, um, I want to start with an activity that I always do at the beginning of the podcast or a conversation starter. Um, and it's to invite our guests to tell us something about a tree that has some meaning or has, yeah, that has had, they've got some relationship with in their life. And, and this was an idea I picked up from a storyteller, a really amazing storyteller, Martin Maudsley. So it's always good to credit people when you borrow their ideas and, and reshape them for, for your own. Um, so yeah, I wondered, Jason, if you could share with us a, a story about a tree. Uh, yeah, okay. That is uh, an incredibly easy question to answer and an incredibly complicated one to answer, both 
at the same time because I never look at these species as individual things within the landscape. It is everything is so interconnected. So the beech tree is connected to the birch tree that lays the foundations for the beech to be able to grow. But if you had to push me on uh, one particular species, then I'm afraid it has to be the quintessential English oak tree. And uh, that's probably an answer you get quite a lot. But, you know, we are all so, so connected to that particular species. First of all, it's the foundations of what this country was built on, whether you look at, you know, the um, great historical buildings where these trees were being planted 400 years before they were due to be used in a cathedral, whether it was the old English warships that were being built, and, uh, and all the way through to uh, modern day. Indeed, my dog, um, her name, she's a border collie, and her name is Quercus, which is the genus for the oak tree as well. So I would certainly identify uh, with the oak tree, but not just because of the historical nature. Um, I use that tree, the same as what I do uh, a large number of other species as well. Um, that tree has particular uses for us, say for example for, um, we can use the tannins within the tree to alter the properties of leather, to um, change the colour of animal skins if we've processed them um, into other materials. Um, we can use the acorns as a, as a food resource as well. Uh, we can use the, um, the bark to um, uh, make teas, um, Again, not teas to drink. I should um, I should add, um, but again to uh, um, to to tan the um, tan the hide. So I think the oak tree has to be one that I'm probably in awe of. You know. Yeah, and they they live so long, don't they? You know. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of different sayings out there, you know, 300 years to uh, grow, 300 years to mature, 300 years to die, although we have species which are much, much older than that. But yeah, it's like the proper grandfather. You cannot fail to be impressed when you sit underneath an oak and you think of the many thousands of species that are supported by that one particular tree, not just directly on the bark feeding off the sap or uh, anything but also indirectly every every other creature that is connected because you know the insect life alone that, that grows on those trees is just uh, yeah it's mind-boggling and uh, um and yeah crazy crazy thoughts oh yeah that's uh I, i'm already picturing an oak tree that i really just love to see whenever i'm from the midlands originally i live in yorkshire now yeah, whenever I'm back home in Stafford, there's one on uh, Cannock Chase where I where I used to sort of spend a lot of my time as a youth. So as you're talking, it's just bringing that to mind in a really vivid way. I remember collecting acorns from there as a kid and then um, planting them as part of a big scheme to try and extend what what remained of the ancient woodland of Cannock Chase. Um, so that's something we can do, I guess, is it? We can grow acorns and then plant them on. You maybe don't need to put it right next to your house because the oak is going to get quite big. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but but nature um, has a fantastic way of doing this job, um, not for us because it's just nature working. But you think of all the, the jays that uh, are picking up those acorns and uh, hiding them away. Think of the squirrels hiding their nuts in grass, etc. So yes, we can provide a, um, a helping hand. But actually, nature nature's on top of this already. As long as we don't destroy the habitat uh, and the space that they need then uh, um, nature nature will do the job and we can sit back and, uh, and and enjoy that glory yeah that's really nice to think in it nature knows what it's doing we just need to stop getting in the way stop interfering with it really absolutely absolutely yeah. and it's really good that you know as soon as i say the oak tree you can picture it straight away um because you are familiar with it and uh, um and that's my job really is to get people to become familiar with the natural landscape or maybe not become familiar, but to remember that, that they are already familiar, they have just forgotten it because modern life does not allow them that connection that uh, um, maybe they should have for their own health and well-being. And so, you know, you recognize the oak tree as soon as I say that. But I bet if I mention a deer, you can immediately picture a deer. And then if I talk about the deer footprint, you can immediately imagine what the leg looks like. And you can immediately imagine how that deer is walking at a very basic level. So immediately you're tracking. You've got that connection already. Anybody can do it. Can be. Bambi is what springs to mind as you talk about that. I think that was yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah, television has got a lot to answer for. They don't think in English and they don't speak in their mind in English. And uh, right. so Walt Disney does have uh, have a few questions to answer. Um, however, um, it's a good starting point. You know, if Bambi is the starting point, then Bambi is the starting point. Let's work with that. Yeah, and something, you know, when I'm working with people and helping them to understand the value of connecting to nature, there are people who sometimes they're not able to leave the house, they're housebound, or they live in very urban areas and have never felt that they have any relationship with nature. And so it might be that the, the starting point is something from the telly or something from a picture or a photograph. And that's that's nature connection. That's the yeah. 100%. I am sat in uh, a stone cottage at the moment in the Peak District. Um, we've not been able to go outside for a lot of time, but right now, right at this very, very second, I am tracking. If I just pause for one second, I have got a sparrow which is giving uh, a chirp, a chirp, a chirp, a constant alarm call outside my window. I don't even have to see it, you know, I can hear it alarming. And that is telling me that something is wrong. Now I have prior knowledge. My dog is outside in the yard underneath <laughs> that sparrow and that sparrow is not happy about it because the dog's not normally there. Um, but that's tracking. You don't have to leave your house for it. All you need to do is just be able to look out the window, hear something, even in a flat in central London, you can still do it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a just look out the window for 30 seconds and there's, there's something happening there. Absolutely. Uh, I guess the thing is, I suppose you know that that sparrow is making an alarm call. You've kind of learned what certain things mean. And I guess to start with, it's just about following your curiosity, isn't it? And going kind of noticing a bird sound and seeing where it's coming from and, and what which bird it might be and how and you know quite often it's sort of fairly obvious 
what, agree with you, totally. you know, what that bird is reacting to if you just take a moment to have a look and if it's not obvious then you know we live in a, a digital world most of us have access to the internet and can you know rattle in a question or go to the library um, so I, I think the starting point is your your personal curiosity and developing that skill I agree. You know, just study nature. It is the most wonderful subject to study. Um, it's a never ending subject. Unfortunately, you will <laughs> never get to the end of it. We'll never fully understand absolutely everything. But if you just sit down and study nature, that is the uh, uh, the, the, the way to approach this and you don't need a guide you don't need an expert with you to begin with um, you can just sit there and observe if you observe an animal's behavior and uh, and it sparks that bit of curiosity why is it doing that you know why is it acting in that way because it will be reacting to something now that might be a food source it might be a partner um it might be a a form of aggression towards some something else there will be a reason for it and the more you sit and just observe and listen and uh, and then the the the, the more this story unfolds in front of you. So have you always have you always done this then, Jace? How did you end up? How did you get to where you are? Is it, is it from you know from as long as you can remember, you've been curious about nature? Or yeah, I mean, for my uh, pretty much my whole adult life, I'm on the wrong end of forty now. And uh, but uh, on the uh, pretty much all of my adult life, I've been an instructor in wilderness skills and uh, um, across the globe. Um, and um, but that came from a childhood fascination with just being outside, wanting adventure, and uh, um, and so I, I travelled um, an awful lot when I was younger. Um, but I also spent a lot of time just sitting at the base of trees, contemplating everything around me, and uh, and that's where it came from on a personal level. Um, I've been lucky to have been mentored by some very inspirational pre people um, both here in the UK and uh, and overseas as well uh, I you know throw names out there they probably won't mean anything to, to most people but Ian Maxwell was a uh, incredibly well respected tracker that came over to the UK um, and I, I was um, uh, lucky to have been taught by him maybe 18 years or so ago. Um, I work with another gentleman in Africa called Colin Patrick, who is a, a renowned tracker. And there's Louis Liebenberg, who has inspired me. And here in the UK uh, is a gentleman, John Ryder, who um, has been um, uh, training me um, professionally as well. So there's been a lifelong interest, but there has also been that academic study of the subject and the two merge together. Um, um, to, uh, um, to, to, to get your knowledge on. But like I hinted at before, um, we'll, we'll never know any, a, a, everything at all about you know, what is happening um, around us. So for me, it's part of a lifelong journey of learning. Um, can you say a bit about, so I'm, I'm really interested in tracking because I'm interested in the fact that there are clues in nature about what mammals and birds and, and snakes and then and insects what you know what what's been happening there's a sort of story there that I'm slowly learning to be able to you know get get a little glimpse into and that's my fascination in it when when I've done um short courses and things in tracking um 
it sometimes the other people that were there they were quite interested in shooting animals and had a very different kind of um approach to me really and uh, i don't know i sort of i almost feel like sometimes there's a there's a funny paradox in the sort of bushcraft wilderness world of people who are absolutely connected and and feel most safe and most comfortable and most themselves in nature but also have this sort of survival skill conquer nature kind of thing going down and yeah I've gone on a tangent there a little bit with that but yeah I'm just I'm curious what your sort of relationship or what your thoughts about that is yeah I'm, I, I can identify with what you're saying totally I mean the um, the whole conquering nature and ridiculousness is uh, unfortunately uh, um, you know bred out from the way that media portrays some of these survival skills and uh, and there's very different camps set out I, I don't follow the conquering at all you know mm. we are a part of nature you know at the end of the yeah. day we are another animal we kind of think that we're not and that is a ridiculous concept because we rely on nature to survive and uh, and so if we don't um, rein in our behavior Views, then we're, we're on the road to nowhere and that, um, but in terms of yeah that hunting aspect and such um you know obviously the the background to tracking skills does come from um you know potentially that hunting background you know talking about how we would have uh, tracked down animals um you only have to look at you know the the sand bushmen out in um, south africa who are you know still using tracking skills for um uh, um, acquiring their food mm. and uh, um, so it does have that history and you know and there are people around that um, that use tracking skills as part of um, you know um, uh, following up an animal it's um, absolutely but there are other uses for it as well and uh, and that could be just simply for the pure enjoyment of looking at a print um, or some other form of um, sign that an animal has been left behind. And seeing a brief window into the life and the habits of that particular animal at that particular moment in time, uh, and a, a window that is normally closed to people. And that's exciting. You know, that is really, really um, uh, uh, awe-inspiring to me. And it doesn't matter whether it is a lion out in the Kruger Park or whether it is a bank vole furrowing through the undergrowth of the beech trees. Um, you know, they're both as fascinating as each other. And if you can familiarise yourself with the sign that is left behind, and I'll, I'll talk about footprints in particular on that occasion, yeah, if you become familiar with that footprint and you can then build up a picture of what that animal was doing, you're never going to find it again because it's the same as snowflakes. Every single piece of sign that is left is different. It has similarities, but you will never find an identical track ever, ever again. So if you familiarize yourself with one track and then you build up a picture of another track of the same species, and then another one of the same species, and then another one of the same species, you get to a point where you can recognize, well, that little scuff mark that, that is a, a result of a fallow deer running through, you know, or 
that little scrape there is territorial behavior of a muntjac deer, all of which we're surrounded by in the UK. And so, yeah, that is exciting. But there's other elements to it as well. You know, wildlife photographers can use these skills to their massive advantage to put themselves in the right place. It's not necessarily about going and following an animal, although trailing is an incredibly exciting thing to do. Um, but if you can identify that there's a particular species that is using this area commonly, whether that is for breeding, whether that's for feeding, whether that's for taking on water, or generally just for resting or observation, then as a wildlife photographer, you can then put yourself in that place and increase your chances of, uh, of being successful. And that goes for an amateur photographer as well as, you know, a wildlife professional. Um, but also, um, I think it's undervalued in terms of wildlife surveying in the UK as well. You know, we have got particular species that, um, that we look to protect. And, uh, um, and if you can become familiar with the track and sign that, um, uh, that those um, creatures um, leave behind, then that can, you know, give you more of an argument for the preservation of that area, whether it's, you know, looking at places where they're going to put houses or whatever development may be taking place. So I think it's a really undervalued skill, but it does have a lot of different angles um, to it for different people's interests. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that as you were talking, whether that kind of surveillance and, and just knowledge and building up a picture and an understanding of, of what's using a particular habitat, what's living there, whether that might be useful. So it was interesting that you said that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, just three days ago, I know in one of my woodlands um, that I have otter going up and down a river. OK, mm -hmm. um, I, I know they're there. I've never seen them before. Yeah. And uh, um, but they they always just seem to be you know fleeting bits, just a, a little suggestion that they're there, or somebody mentions, oh, I thought I saw, you know. But inside me, I was like, this is the perfect habitat, okay, and uh, um, the perfect habitat for it. And uh, and so we went out and we went out to try and find that sign, and we found the sign. You know, we found just one print on a beach on the side of the river. So that tells me that they are there. The next day I go back and investigate that area in a lot more detail then, forensically going through. Then I started to find lots more signs, lots of um, uh, sprints that have been left around and such. And so um, uh, the day after uh, a wildlife camera goes up in the area and that evening we have otter on camera. That, that is amazing, absolutely amazing um, uh, for me personally, for me professionally, but also for the area now, because we can prove categorically that they are there, um, which, which wasn't, the information wasn't there before. But that gut instinct of a tracker tells you they should be here. There's, there's, there's no reason why they shouldn't be. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, a, a clash of a bit of luck, uh, being in the right place at the right time, and then using those field skills to hone down into it. And I think, yeah, a lot of organisations, wildlife conservation bodies would benefit from, um, you know, becoming... Um, uh, 100% familiar with the track and sign of the species that they want to conserve, mm -hmm. but also the other species that can be confused with it as well, so that you're not going down a blind path.
Yeah, I have heard of people near my local river talking about seeing otters and it's mink that they're seeing. Yes, 100%. I tell you, if you track by yourself, you're right 100% of the time because <laughs> nobody is there to challenge you. And uh, um, so, yeah, absolutely 100%. It's, um, yeah, being aware of confusion species is particularly key. Yeah. yeah. And a couple of times there, mentioned, you've mentioned, Jason, um, gut instinct or something like that. And I really love the fact that there's that kind of emotional gut feeling that goes along with actually an enormous amount of knowledge. And as you've said that, you know, the roe deer footprint won't look the same the next time you see it, but you build up more and more. You just kind of, there's a way of knowing that you can't just learn it from a book. You have to be out there in nature, just continuing to be curious. And it's sort of slowly, slowly, it's, it, the feeling I get is that it kind of soaks into you until it's just sort of in there in a way that it's quite hard to explain the difference between one print and another or you know but but it, you, there's a knowing that just sort of happens and I yes. like that that mix of this sort of what feels like something quite magical yes along with something but, quite technical yes and that that needs to be developed and I, I you know that uh, as an individual depending where the individual starts you know that that sixth sense that gut instinct that comes with time okay and so I would not be expecting somebody complete novice to walk out into the woods and go oh yeah I, okay I'm expecting to see blood here and uh, um, you know it, it does come through um, utilizing your other senses first and that's key you know we are massively reliant on um, our vision as a sense um, in, in modern world um, but also just a very narrow part of that vision and that uh, we're used to reading from screens we're used to looking at a television we have binocular vision the same as what you know um, uh, most other predators do as well but we've kind of trained ourselves out of using our peripheral vision and our peripheral vision. So the, um, uh, the, the actual breadth or width of your eyesight that it can see to its full extent, we, we very rarely use now, most people very rarely use. If we can train ourselves to get back into the habit of using that peripheral vision, if we can train ourselves to using our hearing, like we was mentioning before with the alarm calls, if we can train ourselves, and this sounds ridiculous, but if we can train ourselves to use our sense of smell again, and uh, um, outside of the kitchen environment, outside of, you know, the, um, wow, you know, that, that cut flower smells amazing, but actually going out there and, you know, if I'm tracking through a woodland and I can smell, freshly moved earth then that gives me an indicator that something has been burrowing in the area now if it is very powerful earth smell then i might be looking at in the uk something like badger or fox although fox has a very distinctive smell that um, uh, is, is separate to badger um, and so without even seeing the thing you know i can tune into it and so utilizing those those senses first of all even the touch 
you know, there's some pieces of evidence that creatures will be leave behind, you know, the vole feeding on the black sooty bark of the sycamore. If you run your hands over it, it's incredibly distinctive. And it might differentiate between the vole feeding and the squirrel feeding. And uh, um, just by feeling those ripples on, on your hand. Now, if you get into utilizing all of those senses, then that sixth sense will kick in. I can absolutely guarantee it. Because you are becoming so so familiar um, with it and this is why when you walk through the park if you are ignoring your surroundings you don't see anything because all of the other creatures out there are using all of those senses and that sixth sense as well i cannot tell you the amount of times i've watched a roe deer very very skittishly just flicking her ears raising her head knowing that something's wrong i know she can't see me I know she can't smell me, you know, and I, I know she can't hear me, but she's sensing that something isn't quite right. And, you know, and after a couple of minutes, she'd be like, I'm, I'm going to move out of here. I'm not feeling comfortable. And away we go. Now, now I'm putting Walt Disney voices into the deer's head, but you <laughs> yeah, see yeah, it yeah. in the, in yeah. the behavior of the animal. And, you know, if we can develop that sense within ourselves, um, then we put ourselves in a very, very good chance of having some amazing, incredible animal encounters. Yeah, no, that's, I, you've made me think about, I realised a little while ago, I love to watch birds and I was just kept finding myself thinking, how is it that whenever I get a bird in the binoculars, it just moves behind a branch or somewhere else and it just, it's still there. It, it's just moves itself out of view. It's uncanny. You know, kind of uh, historically, like, it's not uncanny, is it? If you're in a cafe and somebody's behind you, but they're looking at you, you can feel it. You you know when somebody's looking at you, don't you? Without seeing it, you can just feel it. And it's like that's what that bird's doing. It's like the more that I use that binocular vision that you talked about, yes, and stare at it in a really focused way, the yes. more I'm telling it that I'm looking at it. So I started to try and observe things with a sort of what a, a softer, more open gaze, which is something I've learned through meditation, and it did make a difference. 100%. I mean, there's a couple of really incredible points that we need to pick up on in there. The first thing is as you've walked through that woodland and you've raised that, um, those binoculars, mm -hmm. don't forget the thing that you're watching has had millennia to, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, to develop these skills in brain in the DNA of the animal to sense danger. And that binoculars could well have been a bow and arrow. That binoculars could well have been a rifle. That binoculars could well have been a predator's eyes just before they pounce. So they have that sense there of that. I'm absolutely, um, absolutely convinced. And uh, um, the other point that I was um, uh, that I was going to make was, yeah, if I, one technique that you can use um, all over the world, but I use it a lot in the UK, is if you do spot an animal just carry on doing what you were doing, okay? Because mm -hmm. if you carry on being like a natural human being, which incidentally, you know, we go through landscapes without seeing anything, even though we think we do, mm -hmm. you know, if you just carry on being natural, pretending that you're not seeing anything, that animal will be more relaxed. 
Mm. And I've used that technique many times walking up on deer in particular. And uh, um, if they've clocked to me, if I just carry on walking past them, they will relax because they think I haven't seen them. And only when they start to relax, I will then put myself into a more strategic place to be able to sit and observe. Mm. And uh, um, if I'm moving through a landscape rather than being still. still. So, yeah, two very important points that you made there. Yeah, that's really, that's very helpful advice. I'm going to keep that in mind because your instinct is to stop. Yes. Stop dead and go, oh, I've seen a deer. I won't move. I'll freeze and then it won't see me. And of course, when you were there way before you saw it. Yeah. yeah. Now, when you look at that, so we've got two different concepts here. So if you're walking through, if you're progressing through a landscape and the animal sees you at the same time as you see it, then carry on progressing just act naturally and, uh, and so you're not a threat. If you are progressing through a landscape and you see, for example, that deer before it sees you, then stopping is the best thing that you can do as long as it hasn't observed you. But don't forget that that deer is observing you through its nose and through its ears. It's not just observing you through its eyesight. And most likely it would have smelled you even before you came over the brow of the hill or something like that. Yeah. But deer have got very poor eyesight um, for detail. They yeah. have exceptional eyesight for movement. So you could be standing in a bright pink T-shirt and uh, um, uh, in the middle of a field. And if you've not moved, the deer is going to be relaxed and it's not going to generally be bothered about you because you're not a threat. As soon as you move, whether that is lifting those binoculars or taking the Velcro off the case or something like that, it's only at that point where it's going to go, oh, OK, I'm not quite comfortable here. And, uh, uh, and off we go. So two different ways of approaching the animal, depending on the interaction that you've had with it, maybe even before you've realised. Amazing. Yeah, and I think Velcro is the enemy of good tracking, isn't it? And noisy clothes. I've kind of got much more in, in tune with, yeah, having having clothes that don't make a noise. And Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, I, I sometimes I, I shake my head when I go into... Um, uh, outdoor outfitters yeah. and uh, uh, and they've got these wonderful camouflage jackets which are just rustly as anything you know with velcro on there on the pockets and, and all of this kind of stuff and um, generally I don't get too hooked up about um, what my clothing looks like I'm more interested in is it quiet yes yeah and um, um, some of the training I did we were taught as well not to wash your clothes in any smelly um, washing powders and things like that and uh, even not cleaning your teeth with mint toothpaste I think somebody said you know the, the dirtier and smellier you are the easier it is to fit into the wild which is that that takes a load of pressure off doesn't it <laughs> yeah there is a limit though you know I mean if you have been sitting by a campfire for example and you smell of smoke then that could you know you think oh I'm disguised I smell of smoke it's natural right. that can actually give the, the game away but you're absolutely right I mean some detergents will actually fluoresce up in your clothing to particular animals eyesight so that can actually make it an awful lot worse for you. So um, yeah, I mean, if I'm out doing my wildlife spotting, I have a set of clothes and uh, they never ever get washed, but also they never, you know, they never go near a campfire or anything like that. They just, you know, they are, and yes, okay. They don't particularly smell very nice, 
I don't care. I'm out there looking and observing wildlife. So, um, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Strong detergents, deodorants, all of those kind of things. Well, I mean, you can smell when uh, a gentleman or a lady walks down the high street with overpowering perfume before you've even seen them. Now you times that by a deer that can smell, a red deer could smell a human scent a mile away if the wind conditions are correct for it. You don't stand a chance if you're, if you're sprucing yourself up before heading out into the wilds, not a chance. And no matter how much we kind of work on our sense of smell, we're never gonna compete, are we? I think no, like, but it is particularly interesting um, that you can develop your sense of smell and uh, um, or, or at least pay more attention to it um, uh, in a natural setting. Uh, I think you'll surprise yourself if you spend the next two weeks from here really concentrating when you sit on the ground, what does it smell like? You know? And uh, um, when you move the earth around under your feet, what does it smell like? If you really do focus down on that, mm -hmm. I think you'll be surprised at how much more you you, you notice. I, I, I will go out now, I am so familiar familiar with our UK deer species um, you know I, I, I'll go out and if there's a deer in a couch um, so it's laying down chewing chewing the cud um, uh, you know if the wind conditions are right you'll smell it um, and sometimes not even see it um, so yeah really do send you know get get your nose in gear if you like. I have tried a little bit. I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this on a podcast before but I'd read in a book about Badgers um, have poor eyesight and good good sense of smell, and they can navigate. They can tell. They can smell different trees as individuals. So all oak trees don't smell the same to a badger. Each different tree will have a different set of smells, and that's part of how they navigate through all their trails, apparently. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I was thought I'll see if I can tell the difference. So I was kind of crouching down to what I thought might be badger height and sniffing round different oak trees for quite a long time just seeing if I could smell any difference and honestly this dog walker went past me three times <laughs> forwards and then back and then back again and then eventually plucked up the courage to ask what on earth I was doing and you know sometimes you do find yourself doing these you know behaving in an unusual way don't you because you're curious about something yeah absolutely and that's learning that's learning <laughs> yes of course you know our smell receptors are not as um uh, as developed if you like in that sense as um say what the the badges is there um but we still um we still have an incredibly powerful sense of smell that we can use and uh, and i'm sure you know you pick it up and uh, um yeah as you walk through like i say spend the next two weeks really really focusing on it but what you've done there is you've gone through a learning experience of okay well i can't differentiate between the smell of this tree and that tree and there are so many different factors i don't know the study the particular study that you talking about is not something that I've come across um, however that's not to say that it's not correct at all and uh, um, you know there's so much stuff that we just don't understand about nature and so getting down on your hands and knees and having a sniff around I would see that as a wonderful learning experience. No, it was quite nice I like the smells I just yeah you know yeah I quite enjoyed myself um, and it's just I'm I'm just trying to, I, there is a badger set in the woods that I walk in that is, I think, an active set. There's signs of frequent digging and it, you know, it changes with the piles of dirt, but I've never seen a footprint on the entrance to the set, although I have seen prints nearby and I've found badger poo 
and um, which I've looked up and checked, and I'm sure it's Bajapu, often in the same place. Um, and I've um, have seen badger paw prints with those amazing huge claws um, nearby. So I'm I'm really sure it's a live set, and I'm trying to build up a picture of the behaviours and the, and you know the the it's I've never yet managed to see one. I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but I I'm, I just keep trying at different times. You know, and I think dawn and dusk are probably good times, aren't they? And other than that, I just think persistence has got to pay off eventually. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's there's a few things that we can draw out from that. Yeah, I mean, the, the footprint of a badger is the most beautiful print that you will find in the UK. It's almost like a mini European brown bear. It's like a bear, yeah. And uh, um, yeah, and those um, those claws on the front feet, that's their digging tools. And so the claw marks will appear quite a, a long distance away from the toe pads mm. um, within the print. And it's a very distinctive shape on that on on the, the whole makeup it's um it's wider than it is longer and that uh, you know the um uh the metacarpal pad is like kidney shaped and by that what i mean is like the the equivalent of the pads at the base of your fingers uh on, on your hands and uh, um you know, very, very distinctive um, shape. They are fastidiously clean animals as well. You imagine what it's like sleeping underground in close quarters. Those um, those dens, you know, they get full of fleas, they get full of insects. And so that's why you're seeing, you know, bedding being taken out and uh, and changed on a frequent mm -hmm. basis. And uh, But in terms of your observation times, the, you know, the classic is dawn and dusk. However, that said, it depends on what level of disturbance the areas get, because if the area is frequented quite heavily by dog walkers or so, and you think about it, when do we go and walk our dogs? Most of the time, dawn and dusk, before and after work. And, and so if there's a lot of disturbance in the area, then they might just go fully nocturnal. And, you know, the, 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 the easiest way to do it is to put a wildlife camera up and, uh, and then observe when what times they're coming in and out of the set and then you would put yourself in you know at that times however what you have to say though is in the united kingdom it is illegal to disturb a badger set and mm. uh, so you need to make sure that you are a good distance away from it but observation is still possible amazing so that's quite that's a nice challenge jason i'm gonna um save up and invest in a camera and then I've, I've used the, the skills that I have so far to get as far as I can. And yeah, it is a place used by dog walkers. Yeah. So I'll report back on that. Yeah, please do. Yeah, that's very exciting. Thank you. Um, so how are we doing for time? Okay, oh, I could just talk to you for hours, um, but I think it's probably getting close to the time where we ought to actually go out and do a little bit of nature connection and, um, and then come back and, and share that experience with with our listeners so listener this is an opportunity for you if you want to you can pause the podcast at this um in a in a moment when we've introduced the activity and get yourself ready and go off out and have a go at it and then come back and see how we got on with it and we're really lucky this time because jason is actually going to set the activity for me so um yeah go ahead jason what did you have in mind okay so um so when we're when we're going out tracking we're looking for different types of sign okay and that sign could be ground sign it could be those footprints the hairs 
feeding sign, bent vegetation, transference of material from one thing to another. Um, it might be aerial signs, so it could be broken cobwebs or dragged vegetation, again, the hair, browsing, etc. But the one that most people kind of um, ignore initially is that pitch and that tone of what is happening within the immediate environment. And that is something that I'd like you to focus on initially. So what I want you to do is to go away and um, find a quiet spot. Now, if you are in a woodland environment, that is perfect. If you are in the edge of a field, that is perfect. As long as it's safe and you're, you're abiding by the laws of the country that you are in, but it can also be your garden as well. So don't feel like you have to go too far. And if you don't have a garden, then you can just sit on the windowsill and, uh, and leave the, the windows open. But what I want you to do is just to tune in to the sounds of what is going around you. But let me put this into um, a picture for you. So ordinarily, I would go and find a tree. Mm -hmm. I would sit at the base of that tree. That way, my silhouette is disguised, okay? And I'm merging myself into the trunk of that tree. Take a pen, take a paper, and draw what looks like a, um, a bow and arrow target um, on this piece of paper mm -hmm. with loads of concentric circles going out. And then once you sit down, imagine that you are in the middle of that concentric circle. So you are the bullseye, you are the center spot. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like you to do is to sit for as long as you can do. Now, to get the best out of this, you, you need to be at least 20 minutes, all right? Just go and sit somewhere for 20 minutes. If you can do more, that's better. When mm -hmm. I was doing my training, I was doing this for four, five, six hours at a time. But 20 minutes is a good amount of time to start off with. And every time you hear something, just mark it on your map, okay? That concentric circles that you've uh, um, that you've drawn out there. Just mark it. If you know what it is, then write down what it is. If you are familiar with the, the call of the robin, for example, then write down robin. If you're not, just write down bird. If you're not even sure what that is, just write down noise. Or you can formulate a key for yourself as well if you wanted to. But what I'd like you to do is to sit down and just keep doing that. Make sure your phone is turned off. OK, and then just sit and relax. All right. And every time you hear this noise, just make a little mark on your map, make a little mark on your map. And what I'm looking for is over the duration of time for the first five to ten minutes, you probably won't hear much. And you'll be going, what is that crazy bloke all on about? <laughs> and that, um, But after 10 minutes or so, I think you will start to hear noises more regular. OK, and those noises will probably change in tone. They'll change in frequency and see if you can just clock into what that difference may be. Right? And uh, what I also anticipate that you will notice is that those noises will come closer to you. All right. So on your map, some of those noises will be closer to the bullseye the more further into this as you go. Mm. And then whenever your time has elapsed, OK, your time is up. What I'd like you to do is to stand up, but take note of your behavior 
as you're walking back to home or to your house or wherever you need to be. Just really, really focus on what is different about you and uh, what is different about how you're feeling as well and how you're feeling about some of the stuff you've observed. And don't forget, when I say observed, I don't just mean with eyesight. I mean with hearing, potentially smelling, anything. So find yourself a nice safe space and go ahead and do that. And this is what we would call a sit spot. Amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to get out and do this. Um, so yeah, brilliant. And, and listener, I do hope you go and give this a go and do get back in touch. If you know, if you do it and you have interesting discoveries or you have anything to tell us, then get in touch. All the links um, to both Jason's website and mine will be in the blurb wherever you found this podcast. And we'd love to hear back from you. Um, but yeah. One final tip for you as you go away to do this, if you're planning on going out for 20 minutes, set an alarm for 45 minutes just in case you fall asleep. <laughs> Top tip. Thanks, Jason. OK, we'll go off and do that and uh, we'll, we'll meet you back here shortly. So hi, hi Jason, welcome back. Hey, um, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Yeah, no, I really, I really loved that. I really loved that. Um, I, I wanted a lot longer. It felt, it felt like someone was making me leave the cinema at the interval, at the, you know, like halfway through the film. I, yeah, it hadn't finished. Um, 20 minutes goes by in about two minutes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Welcome to my world. Yeah. Um, it is an amazing immersive experience, I think. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I'll just hold up to the screen. I know the listeners can't see this, but you can see um, I work there. And what I, I'm going to have a look and see if I can share a photograph of this through the podcast, and I will. Um, it's no work of art, but as we're talking about it, people might want to have a look. Um, so what happened was that I, I sat down and immediately as I was sitting down, I heard a really noisy pigeon take flight, sort of, oh, yeah, quite quite far away. But obviously, you know, me arriving had just caused a bit of a kerfuffle. And I've numbered all the different things that happened so that I can remember. So everything happened in the one, two, three, in the fourth ring as you go out, number four, that was where it all sort of started. And I was hearing things behind me, birds, like a cold tip and then a chaffinch, and then different sort of, um, yeah, different bird noises. And then I heard some people coming past on the path over to my left and everything went silent while they came past talking. And then a wood pigeon started sort of just behind them. Um, yeah, once they'd passed it, then it just started doing that, um, I don't know, that wood, wood pigeon noise. You know that kind of cooing noise. I don't know what I'm not going to. I was almost trying. To almost do. like it sounds like a proud wood pigeon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Pigeon. yeah, I know yeah. exactly. What yeah, um, and then a little bit closer to me, again on that on the left side, I heard. I think it was probably a great tit. Um, might have been a cult tit, but I think it was a great tit. Just doing that teacher, teacher, teacher. And that just went on then for the whole of the rest of the time, pottering about sort of somewhere over to the left. And then great excitement, very near to me, like 
maybe three meters away, I heard it's been in front of me. I heard a, a rustling in the leaves. So it's that I was under an oak tree, and very very dry ground at the moment. Really kind of dry, springy, peaty ground with um, a scattering of dry leaves on it and rustling about in the leaves was a little mouse so that was just amazing and it didn't really seem it either wasn't bothered or wasn't aware of me so it sort of scuttled around in the leaves for quite a while and then eventually vanished into the tree roots um, but I'm pretty sure I'm not brilliant on small mammals but I'm pretty sure it was a mouse it had lovely big round ears and a, and a little tail um, so that, yeah, that was like so exciting. I, I was like, oh, what to tell somebody? That was amazing. Um, I've not seen that before in those woods and not in the daytime. And then, um, oh yeah, so now we're about maybe 10 minutes into the 20 minutes. And I noticed at this point that almost all around me in, well, in the second ring of my concentric so much closer to me there was just constant bird noise so I could hear um, a nuthatch which was very lovely great tits a robin singing um, just kind of yeah no, no just a just a constant kind of sound of lovely bird song all around but then I heard um, off slightly behind me to the right, quite far away, an alarm call. I, I wasn't sure whether it was maybe a blackbird, but something kind of, yeah, was just something had happened. And then I heard another one um, a bit further round to the right. So I, I, I'm sure it wasn't the same bird. It was shortly afterwards. And it, whether they sent messages, it felt like one of them had made a noise and then the next one had gone, ooh, something to tell the others about. And that one made a noise. And then within seconds of that, I heard a magpie. So I thought, oh, maybe the magpie's after the nest. There's like a whole drama going on. Um, I couldn't see any of it. It was just the drama was in my imagination because I could hear it all. Um, and then that was mostly it. There was an, another wood pigeon that flew um, directly over my head. You know, the noise of their wings is very noticeable, very loud, isn't it? So kind of rhythmic, yeah, sound of, of Going straight over my head and then it stopped on a tree quite nearby just in front of me and just watched me I just could tell it was watching me and I was remembering not to stare straight at it because we talked about that and we just sat there both aware of each other for a little while and then off it went again yeah and I think that was mostly it fabulous fabulous it was brilliant May I may I break some of that down just a little bit to now put that into um, a, a context of uh, uh, learning and things to um, to consider for um, future. You've obviously already learnt a lot um, just by doing that, and you know that is key with tracking because you can teach yourself these skills and uh, and with a little bit of um uh, prompting and discussion and what have you it can send you off on a whole host of different journeys the first thing that i noticed was you know as soon as you sit down you mentioned that the pigeon took flight mm. well now you probably won't recollect this but i can give you a guarantee that that pigeon would have gone off in a straight line away from you and then started to have curved around mm. okay and they curve around away from the threat 
So now what you want to consider is next time you're sitting down, if you see that behavior 10, 15 minutes in, that is then giving you an indicator that something else is providing the threat. Now, that may be like in the UK, it may be another human being. And, uh, um, but pigeons will nest 12 months of the year so they can have eggs at 12 months of the year, unlike a lot of the other species. So then if you start to see the nest robbers coming in, like the squirrels or the magpies, and you're getting this pigeons flying out in this particular pattern, it might draw your attention to the fact that there's something else which is causing that effect. And you'll see that with a lot of the stuff that you was talking about there. And uh, you was mentioning a coal tit and a chaffinch, and then people came in on the left-hand side, and that is an exactly the, the circumstances that you would expect with that silence then happening. So as you've arrived, you probably did not notice the alarm calls and the silence as you arrived because you was creating it. Mm -hmm. But then when you're sitting down, you're noticing now the change in the patterns of the behaviors of the creatures caused by somebody else. In this case, it was humans. Mm -hmm. But we can track that silence to give us clues as to what other, so if there's no other humans around, um, John Young is an American author. He's done a lot of work on this um, bird behavior interpretation. He's well worth looking up. And uh, um, we get these um, zones of silence. So if you can follow the silence as it progresses through a woodland, then that may take you to an aerial predator, something like a goshawk or a sparrowhawk. So it is the tune of the other birds which draws your attention into the fact that something else is going on. And I see it quite a lot, um, a classic behavior of robins, for example. They do this wonderful little thing. Robins will hold their territory for 12 months of the year, again, unlike a lot of the other um, uh, birds that are out there. And they'll just fly from perch to perch along their territory following something that is going through. Now that may be you as a human being, you'll see it next time you go out on a walk, have a look out for it. And uh, the robin will keep a safe distance away from you, but will just follow you through its territory. Now, if you're really sitting crazy. down on a sit spot and you notice that behavior from a robin, and you know it's not you, then that will tell you that it is something else. Now, when you really tune into this, it may be a deer that is going through. It may be a fox that is going through. It may be another bird species that is not necessarily threatened by. It won't be another robin because they are territorial, it's gonna protect their territory. So you know if it starts getting agitated rather than hooking, you know that it's another robin coming through. And looking at all of these different behaviors mm -hmm. then starts to give you this glimpse. Now, you mentioned the mouse. Now, without seeing what you saw, knowing the exact habitat exactly, what have you, but if the ears were protruding above the head rather than sitting below the line of the head, yeah, it's were. taking you towards the mouse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it's daytime activity, the chances are it's taking you to something like a yellow necked mouse, quite common. And, uh, but again, you know, I, I am making an assumption based on the information that you're providing me. So I'm tracking right now because I'm trying to see through your world of what you did. And then we're going to then see through the animal's world. So I'm making some, um, some leaps, but they're leaps 
on educated knowledge, their leaps on, well, what is it likely to be? Or the mouse activity, maybe not so much at this mm -hmm. time. Um, so, and, you know, after 10 minutes, you was hearing constant bird noise. You're no longer a threat to them. You've blended in, you, you are an animal again. And this is a wonderful experience to share. And like I say, the longer you do this, the more and more in tune you get. And it's wonderful to have those little intimate moments with those uh, creatures. You notice that, you know, you, you started to hear the call of the nuthatch, very, very piercing call, absolutely beautiful then you mentioned that there was an alarm call going off and you thought that it may have been a blackbird now that sits true because the blackbirds are what we would call a sentinel bird so they're they you know the thrush family they sit right up in the top of the canopy and they are generally ones that will spook first but that communication does go across species Bird blackbirds don't just speak blackbird language, they're speaking bird language. And so that alarm call from the blackbird will alert everything else in there that something is going on. And this is why it's really key to tune into these alarm calls, because again, if it's not you that is creating it, it is drawing your attention to something else. And it has, in this occasion, it drew your attention to potentially magpie, going into some nesting material. So it all fits in really, really nicely. So just in the space of 20 minutes, you have proven to me without a shadow of a doubt that you can track. Now it's not necessarily, we haven't even looked at a footprint yet, <laughs> you know? And, and this is what is amazing about tracking. Anybody can do it. Absolutely any age, any person. People say to me, we've lost the ability to track. I'm sorry, I disagree with it. I think now with the access to modern technology, our understanding of animal behavior that is readily available for us to access, we are way better trackers now, or have the potential to be way better trackers now than our ancestors did who were relying on this for the hunting and subsistence. You know, we can go into so much analytical detail and understand Understanding, and uh, and you are you are now on that journey, and uh, that's that's fascinating, Sitzbot, to me. It was fascinating. Thank you so much for the invitation to do that. It was a gift. Um, yeah, I'm going to do more, and um, yeah, it'll be very interesting to to sort of have the the drawings to go back to, you know, the little diagrams, and to follow through the year as well. So that's something um, I'm going to incorporate into my journal, into my sketchbook. Uh, so yeah, thanks for that. Absolutely, um, my pleasure. Yeah, wonderful. And yeah, just generally, Jason, I feel um, really lucky to have to have been able to have this amount of your time and expertise. And uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm sure the listeners will really appreciate it as well. I'm I'm definitely ready to book onto more courses with you and, and do more. And we will put links um, wherever you find the podcast. You can you'll be able to find links to to Jason and. Um, yeah, there's a whole world more stuff that you could do. Um, so. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoy taking people out into the natural environment and getting them to reconnect a little bit. And like I say, those skills are already ingrained inside you. It just needs a little bit of prompting, a little bit of uh, uh, poking just to bring them out of you. And, uh, and you'll be there and you'll be on an amazing journey, as indeed I'm on an amazing journey even still. 
yeah it's always good to have a, a teacher just a bit ahead of you to to help guide the way isn't it but um mm -hmm. and I guess as well if you if you go on a course that someone else is leading it also means that um it's there's sort of safety in numbers in it like it can feel a bit awkward or conspicuous to be most people just walk through the woods and you know chat away to their friend or throw a stick for the dog and don't pay a lot of attention and so I find when I'm sitting on my own doing nothing for a long time people either want to come and talk to me which is fine I'm not an antisocial person but sometimes I really just like to be by myself or um people just find it a bit unusual and actually if you if you go on a course and you're with other people doing it I think that can be really supportive yeah absolutely shared knowledge uh, shared knowledge shared experiences and uh, um with yeah like you say with a little bit of support from somebody whose knowledge base is maybe that a bit higher than yours and that uh, um and gives you some inspiration to increase yours you know as well um it's a really tacit skill you know there are good books out there that are available but the knowledge comes in the doing you know not in just the reading and uh, and that is where you benefit from getting out there and getting on with it like i say study nature just study nature sit and observe and watch yeah yeah and it'll be rewarding so you mentioned robins which is really pleased that you mentioned that because we've been talking about robins all the way through the different episodes of the podcast and giving people a bit of information about what robins are doing in the uk at this time of year um, just yeah to give a few clues into the behavior so I've done a, a little bit of research uh, you might have more to add to this um, but it seems from the research I've done that the first fledglings will be starting to um, leave the nest just a couple of weeks after they've hatched which I find really remarkable so you might see on the ground these flightless speckled brown birds that perhaps don't resemble much like a robin. I did wonder actually, as you were talking earlier, whether that might be quite helpful for them um, because robins are so territorial and will fight if they see another robin in their territory. Perhaps the fledglings not having the red breast might actually kind of protect them from, um, from attack from other territorial robins at this time of year, I don't know. Um, but certainly the it will protect them, it'll camouflage them, won't it? Um, Absolutely, yes, yeah. It will fly. So these, these young robins are feeding on the ground and being fed by probably by the, the male bird because the female's preparing to lay another clutch. They'll have two yes. clutches. Um, so yeah, so if you see little brown speckled robin shaped birds on the ground, don't think that you need to rescue them. Um, I think that's a really important thing for people to understand, but you know, might be from a safe distance, it might be something quite interesting to watch and, and see the parent coming to feed it and watch it grow. I think observe, yeah, absolutely. But do it do it from a, a reasonable distance because if you if you are in there too close, then um, you could actually put the parents off from supporting that um, that individual as well. So yeah, observe from a sensible distance away. Um, using binoculars is absolutely wonderful um, uh, to do that. Although binoculars can, you know, um, desensitize you to the the bigger picture, and it's worth bearing that in mind as well. But definitely keeping. A, a safe distance away. Amazing, thanks Jason. So um, we're just moving towards the last section of the podcast now, I can't speak, um, where I introduce a meditation that relates to the activities that we've been doing. And before I do that, I just want to um, 
say a little bit about why I do that. So Jason and I discussed this a little bit earlier on and, and agreed that actually doing something like the activity that Jason's just shared with us is a form of meditation, being in nature and tuning in with the senses. Jason was saying that that is your meditation. That is enough. Absolutely. When I go into the forest and I sit and I observe, you know, that is my cathedral. That is my place of worship. That is where I can just totally absorb myself in um, uh, in nature. Um, it is my meditation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, we have to put labels on things, you know, as humans, that's what we enjoy doing. For me, I don't I don't really worry at all what label you want to call it if you wish to call it meditation then then do so I call it life yeah fair enough yeah I mean I, I know that doing that kind of regular practice is something that it it really helps me it helps sort of it helps take make, helps me take a step back from that endless stream of thoughts and get, and kind of get develop that skill of being able to do that whenever I want to whenever I choose to do that um, and I know um, one of my favourite mindfulness teachers, I made a note, a quote that she shared from one of her teachers, an Indian teacher called Manindraji, who said, I meditate so I see the tiny purple flowers by the side of the road as I walk to town each day. And I, I, that really resonates with me. I think the, the, the habit is to forget, to not notice. And actually the meditation as a practice is the thing that can strengthen our ability to notice those things um and yeah i mean you do it for a living in a way yeah absolutely sure. i yeah i understand completely where you're coming from it is um um yeah it, for me immersing myself in a natural environment cleanses my soul mm -hmm. and, uh, and because you are right we are so distracted unfortunately by modern living that um, we forget that actually it's the modern living which is false it's not the nature which is false nature is has always been there and will always been there and we are part of it we are it and uh, um you know we've created a modern way of living and sometimes we need to step away from that and immersing ourselves in in you know um activities such as what you've done today can be an excellent way of you know redressing that balance yeah yeah thank you so Jason, just once again to say thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge and um, sharing a, a tiny bit of the enormous amount of, of stuff that you know. I'm, I'm sure that the listeners will have enjoyed it as much as I have and um, that we'll all now be able to go out and start to develop our tracking skills. So thank you for joining me today. It's been my absolute pleasure. A really, really enjoyable two hours. And uh, um, yeah, I, I look forward to uh, hearing from you and speaking with you again. So we're moving into the part of this episode now where we have a guided meditation. So listener, um, you might want to just take the opportunity to make sure that you're sat really comfortably, you've got your phone turned off and you can just give 10 minutes to tune in. Um, so yeah, just get yourself sat down somewhere nice and relaxed. If you can have both feet on the floor, that's um, often helpful to keep us grounded and sit comfortably tall to um, remain awake. So, and I'm going to introduce this meditation with a poem 
from David Wagoner called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes behind you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to Raven. No two branches are the same to Wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So I'm inviting you now to take a moment to be still, to listen. Being with the senses can feel like a process of deep listening. Listening to our body that exists only in this present moment. This body can't smell tomorrow's dinner or hear the children playing in the playground yesterday. Using the senses, we can bring ourselves to this moment. And in this meditation, we're going to explore three of the senses that often go unnoticed. So inviting you now just to close your eyes if you haven't already and start to tune in to the sensations in the hands. So perhaps you might want to make a pair of fists, ball up your hands really tight, clench them, and then open them up, relax, and just let them fall into your lap or wherever's comfortable. Allowing gravity to take the weight of your hands. And then just starting to bring the attention to the sensations in the hands. Perhaps noticing places where the nails have dug into the palms as you clenched your hands in a fist. noticing tingling, buzzing, changing patterns of sensations in the hands. Bringing the attention focus of awareness into the tips of the little fingers, the very tips. What sensations are there here? And if there are no sensations, then just noticing that. 
then the tips of the ring fingers. Middle fingers. Tips of the forefingers. The thumbs. The palms of the hands. The back of the hands. The whole of the hands. Just holding in awareness. Changing sensations in both hands. Perhaps lightly stroking the back of one hand with the fingertips of the other. Noticing the light tickle of that sensation. Perhaps soothing, stroking the backs of the hands. And then letting go of that focus on the sensations in the hands, dropping the hands back into the lap comfortably and becoming aware of all the sensations on all the skin that is exposed. The face, neck. Perhaps ankles, feet or legs. Is it possible to notice any sensations on the skin that's under the clothes? Really tuning in to the sense of touch. Of clothing on skin. Of the body on the chair the floor or the cushion. And then letting go of the focus on the sensations on the skin. And opening up now to the sense of smell. Is it possible to detect any smells around you? Perhaps the smell of the skin on the back of your hand. Your clothing. Maybe if you've got long hair, you can smell your hair. Perhaps there are faint Scents coming in from an open window or a kitchen. Just becoming curious about any subtle 
awareness of smells, aromas. And then for the last few moments of this meditation, opening up now to the sounds around you. Is it possible to notice the precise point when a sound begins and ends? Perhaps imagining your ears as microphones or sound recording devices that can tune in very precisely to different sounds as they appear and then disappear. What sounds can you hear? Nearby? What's the furthest sound you can hear? And when you notice that your attention has wandered and you're no longer listening to sounds, just gently bringing yourself back. I am listening. What's the quietest sound you can hear? Perhaps sounds from your own body, breathing or digestion. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. And now in your own time, when you're ready, just gently opening your eyes, coming back. Perhaps having a gentle stretch, some deeper breaths. And seeing if it's possible for you over the rest of your day or week, whenever you're reminded of it, to just briefly tune into the senses in the body of touch, smell and hearing.
So thank you for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation, the walk and tracking activity and of course the meditation. Uh, this meditation works well if you want to take it outside with you, if you've got a device that you can uh, download it onto and, and some headphones and you can find a safe place where you can sit quietly and not be disturbed for 10 minutes. It can be interesting to tune into the senses while you're outside. Um, so that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us and I hope you join me again for my next Listen Here podcast.